we sell gifts as well as jewellery. Things like a teapot for two quid. Every now and then, quite often actually, a big company or a politician or a business person will screw up. This guy did, Gerald Ratner. He was the chief executive of a jewellery company in the UK, Ratner's. And in 1991, he gave this speech to the Institute of Directors. And it's an infamous speech because of this line. People say to me, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say because it's total crap. Um. It's a funny line. Honest. Maybe too honest. Anyway, the crowd laughed. The shareholders didn't. The value of Ratner's dropped by half a billion pounds. The company was devastated and ended up having to rebrand. But when you do screw up like this, you do have options. You can apologise. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behaviour. You can non-apologise, apologise. Mistakes were made here. Uh, There may be a situation here in which a serious mistake was made. Clearly mistakes were made. There were mistakes made in Iraq for sure. You can double down. I'd like to take this chance to apologise to absolutely nobody. The double chance does what the f*** he wants. Or you can call in the professionals, PR people, experts in crisis management, and their job is to help you get through it. But what does that actually involve? What sorts of issues are at play? What are the considerations? What's the playbook? What if you think you're right or that you're being treated unfairly? Today on The Detail, co-owner of the Draper Cormac PR company and former Green Party staffer David Cormac sits down with me to chat Crisis Comms 101. At a fundamental level, PR people, communications people, what do you do? What is the skill set that you have? Why do people hire you? At a, at a really basic level, we understand how people will emotionally react to things. And so we will provide that information to you if you do x then a journalist is going to do this line of questioning and the public is going to respond in this way the best thing that i always bang on about is having a communications person at the top table at the senior leadership team because quite often terrible decisions get made because comms people aren't there and then it goes badly and then the comms person is dragged in to try and fix it after the fact whereas if you'd had someone whose primary focus is your organization's reputation they may have been able to stop it before it happened why is reputation important well i think you with the ratner story i say because it's total crap um, Right, that had real pecuniary issues. He he said a dumb thing, and the company lost half a billion quid. At that level, there's a there's a monetary loss that has occurred. There's also uh, social capital. So more often than not, it comes down to commercial advantage or disadvantage. That's that's the primary uh, reason. But also, people just want to be liked. Mm. You know, we, we want to be respected and liked for what we do and understood and, and appreciated. We want people to understand what we do and people just, they just want to be liked. At a very human level, we just want to be liked. We've had a couple of 
really interesting goings on recently in New Zealand. First off, we've got, we, we had the the situation with TVNZ and the presenter Kamal Santamaria. TVNZ's boss has launched a review into the company's hiring processes following the departure of breakfast host Kamal Santamaria. The former Al Jazeera presenter resigned after just 32 days in the job. He's accused of inappropriate behaviour towards female staff in the newsroom. We had business New Zealand repeatedly mischaracterising, I think it's fair to say, how the International Labour Organisation was viewing the proposed fair pay laws that the government is considering introducing. For starters, New Zealand hadn't been condemned by the ILO, neither had it been placed on a list of the worst cases of breaches of international labour treaties, and the only reason it had appeared just ahead of Nigeria was that the list the UN had put out was ordered alphabetically. And most recently, we had uh, the leader of the National Party, Christopher Luxon, was having to clarify his views on abortion in the wake of Roe versus Wade and whether that might affect abortion laws here in, in New Zealand. The National Party has spent four days promising it won't touch New Zealand's abortion laws if elected, but abortion campaigners are still worried. Now, these, of course, are four very different situations with very different forces at play, I suppose. But is it fair to say that in each case they weren't dealt with optimally, do you think? Yeah, I think that is, that's, that's a pretty accurate way to characterise them. Um, there are things that sometimes with only the benefit of hindsight, but then there are also some basic 101 stuff that I think in most of those examples, either the person or the team behind the person made some bizarre moves that I think you should have been able to anticipate were going to go wrong. I think of uh, the TVNZ example, and, and you talked about the comms and PR response to that, and I don't think that's fair. Mm-hmm. I think it was the organisational response, because I, I'm not privy to what went on, but from my perspective, what it looked like was that legal and HR won an argument, mm-hmm. and they bet the comms team and said, no, we can't say what uh, Kamal has actually been accused of. We have to give a vague uh, sort of mischaracterization of it to, to preserve our own position from a legal perspective or for whatever reason. It is worth noting that what was earlier called a family emergency is now being called that personal matter. Because the, the comms person would have certainly gone, we can't call this a family emergency because that's just a misrepresentation of what went down, although as as everyone seems to make the same joke, I'm sure it did create a family emergency. And so, you know, I would hope that the comms function at TVNZ was arguing to be more upfront and honest. And it's particularly tricky in a media organisation with a newsroom. I've mm. done some work with media organisations and, and newsrooms are of an organisation are very bullish. And so they, you have to treat them very carefully because the separation of church and state is, is of huge importance. And sometimes newsrooms will actually go out of their way to hammer their own organisations more to prove their independence. We have asked for more information, both from Television New Zealand's Head of News and Current Affairs and also its Corporate Affairs Department, both declining to add anything further at this stage other than TVNZ saying that Kamal Santamaria is focusing on his family. You kind of have to operate under the assumption that the truth will come out eventually. And there's a classic thing that all comms people will tell you, which is that the cover-up in this country is almost always worse than the crime. People react far worse if you try to withhold information 
uh, rather than if you just go up front and say, look, this is a thing that has happened and it's really terrible. Well, what about in a situation where you think that you are right or when it concerns someone's convictions or principles which are unique to individuals? I mean, I'm, I'm getting here at the, the most recent example, Christopher Luxon and Christopher Luxon's personal views around abortion, which are influenced by his faith, versus the National Party's policy around abortion, which, as I understand it, there is nothing. They essentially consider this a, a settled issue. And yet Christopher Luxon is being repeatedly asked about about this. The story is, is building up momentum, and it seems difficult to diffuse at this point. On the day we're speaking, it's the fifth day in a row where Luxton is still being asked about it. You have repeatedly reassured New Zealanders you don't plan to make any changes to abortion laws. Is it reasonable for people to be sceptical given your personal views and those of some in your caucus? And that is, that's disastrous from a comms perspective. In this day and age, you should be able to nullify something within a 24-hour news cycle. So for this to still be going on after five days is indicative of either a really crappy performance from him or bad commsing. And I'm I'm not sure which because I'm not privy to the inner workings. But you're right because it's tricky because he genuinely is anti-abortion. That's that's his position. For him to be true to himself, he has to he has to stick true to to that system because we do want our politicians to be honest and upfront with with who they are and what they believe. Aside from anything else, we knew this decision was coming, right? So the Roe v. Wade overturning was leaked what a month ago, mm. six weeks ago. People within the National Party should have been like, okay, this is a topic that Luxon got hammered on when he first became leader. You didn't say on the AM show this morning whether you thought that abortion is tantamount to murder. Could you clarify that? Do you well, think what I want to say, no, murder? I'm not going to talk about it because all I'm saying to you is I have a pro-life view. Nicola actually has a pro-choice view. The two of us actually represent views that are... So it is very obviously going to be raised with us when it comes out. So you should be preparing. You should have a plan and a message well ahead of time because you should know that this is coming down the line. And then, of course, it wasn't helped because he had one of his more conservatively Christian MPs do that Facebook post Mm. saying today is a good day. And that just really rubbed the majority of New Zealand up the wrong way. And so he was no longer just answering for himself. He was having to answer that there were some national that would have been quite happy to repeal Roe v. Wade. And Simon O'Connor's Facebook post had been liked by by other MPs. Simeon had liked it. So in another rare misstep. So, you know, there, there are... This this was sort of a, a nightmare uh, situation for National that could have been cut off at the pass if there'd been a discussion within caucus about what to do before it happened. But I guess, let, let me just get on there, because I, I guess from the perspective of the National Party or from the perspective of a National voter, they might say, well, this is not fair. Christopher Luxon is entitled to his personal beliefs. It's very unlikely that there is popular will among the electorate in New Zealand to recriminalise abortion in New Zealand. Our Prime Minister doesn't wield sole executive power. We're not electing a person to enact their personal political agenda. And look, you you might not agree with somebody holding the philosophical belief that life begins at conception, but it's philosophically defensible. And it's not fair of the media to just keep going and flogging the dead horse disingenuously. So, I mean, there's a few things to unpack there. The first point is that um, 
abortion is broadly popular in the United States as well. And so just because the majority of, of New Zealanders might view abortion as being something that they want to have uh, available for those that need it, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stop someone from making an unpopular choice. I mean, they have a very, very different political system, which, which plays into this, but point taken. Yep. Um, and so secondly... What you've got with with Luxon's view on abortion is it speaks speaks to a certain set of values that he has that must influence his thinking across a range of things. I think that people do have a right to understand that. I think the media is perfectly entitled to nail the National Party down on what their views are and what those views would mean across a whole host of of situations. And I also think that the the media is perfectly entitled to ask about Nanaya Mahuta's comments because she also came out and said that uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was, was a tragedy, and yet she voted against the decriminalisation of abortion. And so I think the media is perfectly entitled to ask about those sorts of questions too. And comms people need to have those answers prepared. Mm-hmm. And those answers have to sound authentic and like they are being said by the individual who's being interviewed and not written by a comms person. Let's take a step back from these examples that have been in the media recently and just talk sort of hypotheticals about how a crisis communications response sort of unfolds. Your prospective client has really screwed up. Talk me through how this process works. Do they do they give you a call? Do they ask for a meeting? Do they tell you about their situation on the phone? How do things unfold over time? I mean, it varies from client to client, but more often than not, it'll just be a phone call. And we'll have been referred because of they'll have run into something disastrous and they'll have asked somebody else and they might have said, oh, we worked with Draper Cormac Group and so give them a call. And so they'll they'll give uh, me or Lou a call. Uh, and then they'll, they'll tell us what they've been accused of. And the very first thing we need to ascertain is facts. You have to have as much information as you can before you do anything. And so you are often asking uh, sometimes massive organisation-level CEOs to be very honest with you in a way that they're perhaps not comfortable being. Mm. But we make it very clear that we can't do a job for them unless they are fully honest with us because otherwise it's not going to go well. And so you need to have you, – you're basically asking someone to trust you instantly at a time when they're already in high stress. That initial phone call, you, it'll be a case of, okay, what are you being accused of? What actually did happen? And what is the current situation? Is there a journalist waiting for you to call them back? Uh, has a journalist already started writing a story? Is there a story already up? Depending on the urgency, you might put down the phone and, and go around to the organisation immediately. We find it's better to be face-to-face with someone who's going through a crisis. And then we'll start giving them reassuring words because we'll explain to them that while they are in the middle of the crisis and it's horrendous, they need to appreciate that the majority of the people in this country actually won't even know that a situation has occurred unless it's really, really egregious. If we're being called for comment at the time and the phone's going off the hook, we will actually say, look, preferably it's not us, it's actually the the, the head of the organisation or whomever it is that we're, we're dealing with. They'll say, look, I'm really busy at the moment, um, please let me call you back. 
uh, and that buys us some time to, to pull ourselves together because no one can be expected uh, to have all the answers off the top of their head. And so then we'll be writing it all down and so we'll have the truth and we will sequence it all out and then we will say to the client, look, is, is this accurate? We'll get them to look over everything that we've just done and yes, that's that's exactly as it is. And then we will play the role of journalists ourselves and so we'll start interrogating the things that have happened, trying to pick holes and find if there's information that's missing that, that we need in order to be able to tell the story. The first statement that you issue can often be the make or break of how this is going to go. If you have cocked up, if you had made a mistake, we're a big advocate in actually apologising. Mm. Not doing a politician's apology for saying, I'm sorry that people felt this way, but you actually need to apologise for the action that you are being criticised for. So if I've been accused of, of punching a dog, I wouldn't say I'm sorry that I upset people with me punching a dog. I would say I'm sorry for punching the dog. So you, you need to own the actual thing that you're being accused of. This is if you have done it. If you are straight up and honest and you apologise, 99 times out of 100, the same series of events occur, which is that initially people will go, oh, this is, this is just a PR response and they've just talked to comms people, which is accurate. Uh, and, and then you give that a little bit of time and then people will be like, oh, you know, that's actually, it's actually big of them to own what they've done. And, and I, I actually admire them for, for apologising and taking ownership of it. And so that's, that's a situation where you can actually take the bad event and turn it into a, a positive testament to character. That's the best way out of a crisis. We don't see that a lot. Most people hate apologising. They hate admitting that they've done wrong. I'll never apologise for the United States of America. Ever. I don't care what the facts are. And so they, they tend to dig in. And one of the things that is difficult about our job is that we're advisors. Mm. So we can only give advice, and then it is up to you whether or not you take that advice and do what we suggest. Now, you should take the advice because we're the experts. That's why you've brought us in. And so we will belabor that point. But sometimes people will try and rush out a statement because they think that it's important to get their side of the story out first uh, instead of getting all the information. And that's a mistake. You need to gather up all the information first so that you are factually accurate because it's a disaster if you issue a statement about an issue and then it's uncovered that it's not true. That's just sort of hours one, two, three, and four of any given crisis. Uh, and then if there's like a, a call for, say, a television interview and and you try to avoid those where possible then you have to start doing some serious prep and there's weird things you need to prep like if you're going to do the interview from someone's office then oftentimes what I'll do is is that I'll set my cell phone up to be sort of opposite the person and then I'll go and look through my cell phone I'll be like okay what will the viewer see because let's say you might be a history buff with a copy of Mein Kampf in your, in your bookshelf uh, probably a good idea to not have that on your bookshelf in a TV interview. And so you're, you're peering down the lens of the camera trying to see what the viewer will see uh, to make sure that everything is tip-top. Um, and depending on the story, uh, if you need to convey being a very serious business person, then you know, you'd be like, if it's a man, you'd be like, okay, we need you to wear a tie and a jacket. And so you get down to really granular things like clothing, like hair, like what's on your desk, what's in your bookshelf. And these are all things that you need to understand because all of this feeds into the overarching impression that the individual is going to give when they do the interview. And as I talked about, authenticity is really important, uh, but also so is not having a copy of Mein Kampf. 
Why do you want to avoid TV interviews? TV interviews are the ones that people stress out the most about. And also because the visual stuff is really important, but you don't control it. So, you know, I'm a bit of a fatty. And so if I do a TV interview and there's bright lights, I might start sweating. And that's a really bad look. Fat, sweaty guy on camera looks dishonest. And so that plays into the the takeaway that people have. Whenever people are doing TV interviews, we always say, okay, we need you to make sure you have a glass of water there because if people get dry mouth, then you start getting that noise and that sounds really bad as well and it sounds like oh they've got something to hide like people start over analyzing all of these things that go into a to a televised interview Uh, and we'll say you know mop your brow immediately before if you've got time go get some Botox that's literally never happened but you know it's just those (laughs) sorts of things that you need to be aware of when you are fronting up to to the media and and other little tricks that you'll talk about so if you get asked a question that you desperately don't want to answer then you do what I call you give a verbal tick where you break up the question and your answer and you'll say look Emil that's a really great question and I think what people want to understand is and then you launch into whatever answer that you actually want to give so look at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I refute that. At the end of the day, I mean, in the end of the day, I absolutely refute that. And at the end of the day, I refute um, the last part of the member's question. Actually, at the end of the day, Speaker, I refute the premise of that question. As I say, at the end of the day, and just by having those few words before your answer, it will satisfy the listener and oftentimes the journalist that you've answered the question, even though you quite often haven't. There are all these little tips and tricks that you can do. To, to try and make the interview go your way. And I think the most important thing, and we really always have to reiterate this for clients, is that the journalist they're talking to is not who they're trying to convince or satisfy. The people that they're trying to convince and satisfy are the consumers of that media. They're the person watching the news or, or reading the article or listening to it online or, or on the radio. And so always focus your answers on those people because more often than not, if it's a TV or a radio interview, the journalist question isn't actually going to be in the audio and so they're only getting a soundbite from you so no matter what you ask me I'm just going to fall back onto my original message because that's all that's going to get played. In the conclusion of a crisis comms situation what dictates whether something has been a success well, I mean is there such a thing as a success in dealing with an emergency situation like that or is it kind of is it like a divorce and that like the best thing is is, oh, thank God, that's over. Yeah, pretty much. Like, occasionally you can turn it around to be a good thing, like in the instance of being open and honest and apologising up front and people going, oh, what a GC for owning up to it and apologising, and that can actually earn you social capital. But measuring that's very difficult. Uh, But more often than not, it's just a story that's no longer appearing in the media and that social media is no longer talking about, okay, crisis over, we can move on. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to David Cormack. Matewa. Matewa.